Good morning, everyone. Great to see you all here today and to share with you in this time together. Um, worry. How are your fingernails? Are you one of those people that chew your fingernails because you're worried about something? And uh, you're terribly upset or wondering what's going to happen. Worry is normal and it is natural for human beings. In fact, according to Jesus, it's part of what makes us human beings. He said in our Bible reading, and it comes in other parts of the New Testament, like Matthew as well, that the birds of the air don't worry. The lilies of the fields don't worry. It's we who worry as human beings. It's just part of us, isn't it, as human beings. You don't see birds sitting down and biting their claws because they're worried, or tigers biting theirs, or whatever. Maybe you do, but you know what I'm saying. It's only we humans that do that sort of worrying, and things get on top of us and gnaw away at our minds, and we wake at 3 o'clock in the morning, and it's churning over and over. That, uh, that song talks about windmills in your mind. And it's like that sometimes when something gets on top of us and we worry and worry and we fret about it. Now the question is, if it seems to be a natural thing for human beings to worry, is it good or bad? Is it helpful or not? Ten years ago, a medical survey was done, which was reported in the papers. It says that, said that one in four people said that they were very unhappy about their jobs. One in three permanently felt exhausted, unappreciated, and underpaid. The person who conducted that survey was a psychotherapist by the name of Christine Weber, and she carried out the survey, and she said this in the report, Sadly, it comes as no surprise to me that so many people are unhappy at home and at work. It seems that people's lives do not live up to their extremely high expectations. It is particularly worrying to see how many people worry and dwell on morbid thoughts with a large proportion just plainly exhausted by life. Now, if that was findings 10 years ago, imagine what it would be like today. When you hear the, what's going on in Europe and what you hear, hear what's going on in Iran and Iraq and uh, these other places we've been thinking about and, and praying about it. But is it wrong to worry? Should we be those who just float through life without any worries at all and just carry on as if nothing was the matter at all? Now, clearly, there's more than one sort of worry. I, I don't really think you need me to tell you that. There's more than one sort of worry. Did you notice in that little quote I gave from that woman... Christine Weber, the irony of what she said. She said, in discussing how, peop how people worry and how bad it is, she said, it's particularly worrying to see so many people worrying, <laughs> which I thought was rather fun. You know, she's worried about people worrying. It's like people who are famous for being famous. They haven't done anything else, but they're just famous for being famous. But of course it's right to be prudent and to be careful about how we live. Of course it's right to be 
on a normal day-to-day -day basis to be concerned and worried about different things that we come in touch with. We thank God for the instincts that he's given us that cause us to be concerned. K Sarah Sarah is not going to get things organized for that important meeting that you have this week. And it will not get your exams passed if you just say, oh, whatever will be, will be. Won't get your exams passed. In fact, those who teach in senior schools, and there are some of them here, I can pretty well guarantee that part of your job, especially in the latter years of school life, is trying to get the pupils to worry a bit more so that they will do some work and study the subject that they're supposed to be studying and take their exam. I, I, I also came across this. Um, for safety's sake, do not ride on automobiles because they cause 20% of all fatal accidents. Don't stay at home because 17% of all accidents occur at home. Don't walk on the streets or the pavements because 14% of accidents happen to pedestrians. Don't travel by air, rail, or water. 6% of accidents happen on these. Oh, as over 90% of people die in bed, the last place you want to spend time is in bed. It's the least safe place, place in the world. But only point naught, naught, naught. 1% of all deaths occur during worship services in church. <laughs> and those are nearly all attributable to previous physical disorders. Hence, the safest place for you to be on Sunday mornings is in church. <laughs> but when we read in our Bibles, what does it mean when Jesus repeatedly says then, don't worry? Don't worry, don't worry. And how do we apply that to our lives? Surely what Jesus is actually saying is, that yes, there are legitimate things that we need to be concerned about on a day-to-day -day basis, but we have to get our worries in perspective on other issues as well. There are other things that we need to take into account when we consider the things that we worry about. Because if not, if we focus on our little worries, however great we think they are, if we focus on those worries, we shall eventually become obsessed by those things. They'll become almost like phobias for us until we can think of nothing else and it begins to affect every area of life because we're focusing on our particular issue, which may be a perfectly valid thing to be concerned about. But if we get it out of proportion in comparing it with other things, we'll be in trouble. And Jesus gives us four particular areas that we might be over-worried about. And I'm sure he uses these as illustrations, and you could add others to them. For example, he talks about food. And uh, we're not working here, so never mind, we'll leave that. He talks about food. And don't, don't bother, don't bother. And he says, don't worry about what you eat or drink. We can be so taken up with food. You know, and all the preparations for, obviously we've got to be concerned that we get meals ready and we prepare and so on and we need to work hard so that we can provide for ourselves and for our families and so on. But, you know, some
and our diet and how we behave with our food and so on can take a place that really is, we become obsessed by it all. <laughs> Don't worry about things like this. <laughs> just, um, just switch it off, thanks very much. Computers are lovely when they work. But we can become over-obsessed by our food and all the things to do with food. And Jesus said, won't the God who clothes the grass of the field and feeds the animals, won't he care for you? I, I came across this, and I thought I'd just read it to you because it's um, quite interesting, really. It was a, it's a pastor who, preparing to teach on Leviticus, he was a brave man, to teach on Leviticus, and he came to that point in Leviticus where it was talking about the offerings of it, that the Israelites brought and how they were to handle them. And when they brought offerings to the temple, to the tabernacle, they were required to separate the fat from the rest of the offering, and the fat was given to the Lord. The fat was his. And so the pastor wrote a poem about it. Someone said that confession is best for every soul. Well, I'm about to have one. Help me not to lose control. I'm sick and tired of having people tell me what to eat. And I could tell you here and now, my joy would be complete if someone came along and said, forget about your diet. If you see something yummy, baby, go ahead and try it. Have some cookies, have some pies, have some apple strudel, have some chocolate pumpkin cake, and have a chicken noodle. What if someone said, the more you eat, the better. Throw away your tailored suits and wear a baggy sweater. If joyous means you're full of joy then I can surely try to get the world to see that pious means you're full of pie. <laughs> so if somebody tells me I'm looking roly-poly, I'll just say, don't worry, pal, I'm hefty, but I'm holy. And if my pants are growing tight, I simply can't be cowed. It's not that I am getting fat, but divinely endowed. Though skin and bone are mine alone, tread where the saints have trod, I'm storing up for Jesus, friend. My fat belongs to God. <laughs> so there you are. That's given you license to eat. But, you know, we can become obsessed in one way or another, how much we eat, how little we eat, whether we're eating the right thing and so on. There are times when we need to be concerned about these things, but to not become over-obsessed by it all is what Jesus is saying. Then he talked about fashion, the clothes we wear. Must have the latest material, must have the latest style. I was reading that only 7% of clothes, only 7% of clothes wear out. The rest are discarded because they're out of fashion. Buy them one year, next year they're out of fashion. And we become obsessed by the things that we wear. And Paul, uh, uh, Jesus said about Solomon, Solomon in all his splendor was not arrayed like one of the lilies of the field. And then the third thing, fitness. It, it, Jesus said it about who can by worrying at a single hour to his life. I know it says, in some translations, a cubit to his stature. That can't possibly be right, because nobody in their right mind would think that by worrying they could add 18 inches to their height, which is what a cubit is. So it must mean, as it says in most of the translations, an hour to his life. You can take an hour off your life by worrying, but you can't add to your life by worrying. And Jesus said, if you can't do a little thing like that, why worry about other things? And then people worry about the future. What tomorrow will bring forth. Tomorrow, Jesus said, it's got enough cares of its own. 
Don't worry about the future. That doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't be wise and preparing for the days to come and prudent in the way we act and so on, but not to become obsessed by it till we're consumed with worries about the future, what's going to happen, etc. We turn on our television and it seems that the news and the broadcasters would think that that's the important thing, try and get everybody in the country to start worrying. Now, there are major concerns, and we need to be concerned about these concerns, if I can put it like that. But not to get them out of perspective is really what Jesus is saying. So whether it's food or fashion or fitness or the future, Jesus said these are not things to be too worried about. So how do we get them into perspective? What does it actually mean to do that? Well, he went on to say this. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Now, if that verse is true, and Jesus said it, so it is true. If that verse is true, that puts into perspective all those things that Jesus called little things. If he's given us the kingdom, then those other things fall into perspective. Let's look at that just for a second or two this morning. First of all, he said, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. He's pleased. In other words, this is not something that God has to do because somehow he has, feels he's got his arm twisted by somebody or something or whatever. He's pleased to do it. He longs to do it. It's God's delight. He does it gladly. It was his pleasure to do it. To give us the kingdom is what Jesus is saying. And I think that's an, an, an amazing thing. It's an inescapable conclusion from what Jesus was saying. In complete freedom, unconstrained by any other pressure or motive, he exercises his deepest delight, and his delight is to give you the kingdom. He longs to give it to you. He wants to give it to you. It's his joy to give it to you. It's his wish. It's his hope. It's his pleasure. He delights to give you the kingdom. Now, can you grasp that about, the king, about God? He wants to give you the kingdom. Second thing, notice it said, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. It's how he describes God. He describes him as our father. Now, if you think about it, you would expect it to say, the king is pleased to give you the kingdom. After all, he's talking about a kingdom. So you'd expect it to say, the king will give you the kingdom. But he doesn't describe his heavenly father, God, like that. He describes him as a father, a father, someone who loves and someone who cares. He shows us by saying that, that God is not begrudgingly giving us this, but like a father who provides for his child, he delights to do it as a father caring for his little children. Of course, we, we know, and it could even be in your circumstances, that your picture of father, because of your background and your family life, is not a good one. Sadly, in this fallen world, there are families that are not good pictures of what a father and a mother should be. Maybe that's even true of you. But we understand what they should be. We're told that Jesus, Jesus told us that his that God is a loving father. 
And if God be for us, who can be against us? Is how the Apostle Paul puts it. He comes across to us as a loving father. I wonder if your picture of God this morning is an ogre in heaven looking down on you, waiting for opportunity to stamp on every little thing that you do wrong and you get, get and you slip up on and so on. That's not the picture that Jesus gives of his father. He describes him as a father who loves to give, unconstrained by anything else, undeterred by anything that we do. He loves to give. He's a father. And then the third thing. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. He gives it. He doesn't say he will sell you the kingdom and the purchase price is your good behavior. The purchase price of the kingdom is if you do this good deed or that good deed or if you live up to this standard or that um, rule that you have in your life. It doesn't say he'll sell it to you but that he will give it to you. You don't have to trade for this kingdom. It's a gift to be received. He will give you the kingdom. Out of his overflowing bounty, he loves to just give it to you. That's not to say then that we can just please ourselves and do what we like. For if we are children of a loving father, we shall want to please him. But he gives the kingdom. And it's mentioned lots of times in the New Testament that God treats us like that. Truly, truly, I say to you, says Jesus, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child shall not enter it. Or elsewhere he said, the secrets of the kingdom have been given to you. It's his pleasure to give. Now I know that sometimes we feel that this is almost too good to be true. You feel you haven't earned it. You feel you don't deserve it. You feel you haven't lived up to the standards that you would, would get it. You're not good enough. You're not spiritually mature enough. That's because you have thought that the kingdom comes by earning it. But it doesn't come by earning it. It comes as a free gift. It is given. Then the next word. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Now, we've already remarked on the fact that Jesus is speaking about a father, and we've already commented that he must be a king because he has a kingdom to give us. Now he talks about him as a shepherd because he, gives, he treats us as his flock. Now what does being a shepherd of a flock mean? When you think of that in the context of the Bible, your mind immediately goes to things like Psalm 23. The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul and so on. And that's lovely Psalm 23. And it speaks of the promise of green pastures and still waters, guidance and the light of life, comfort in the shadow of death, triumph over our enemies, overflowing cups of gladness, the omnipotent goodness and mercy of God pursuing us every day and then forever and ever. That's what Psalm 23 is about because he's a shepherd and that's what the shepherd wants to provide. 
And when we see Jesus face to face one day, we shall see the good shepherd who calls his own sheep by name. It's a wonderful, wonderful thought. So he gives us these things, not under constraint, not begrudgingly. In fact, the father even gave his son willingly. No one takes my life from me, said Jesus. I lay it down of my own accord. And the one who did not withhold his son, his only son, says Paul, will not withhold anything from us. And if he gave his son to be the saviour of the world as he died on the cross, then we can be assured that having given the highest and the greatest gift he could possibly give, even his son to die for us, bearing our sin in his cross, if he's done that, then he will not withhold anything. It's a wonderful thing, wonderful picture there. It was the Father's pleasure to bruise him so that he could give us the kingdom. He, Jesus, was given your punishment for sin, and in exchange, he gives us his kingdom. We're his little flock. And then notice that word little. Do not be afraid, little flock. For it's the Father's the Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Why does he say little flock? After all, today there will be millions and millions around the world who are meeting to worship him and to praise him and sing his praises. And then when Christmas comes around, there will be millions more who will be in churches and chapels singing carols and thinking about Christmas. So why does he talk about a little flock? Well, I think he probably means little in the sense of insignificance rather than numbers or size. Because we so easily feel ourselves to be weak and small and insignificant. I wonder if there's a crisis in your life, a problem that you're facing now that is not in your control. And in the face of it, you feel so small so insignificant. You wish that you either had the power in your personality, in your circumstances, in your life, or whatever it might be, to get hold of the problem and deal with it, but you know you're just too weak. It could even be something personal, like a habit that you love to break, and you feel so small in the face of it. He doesn't mean size here. It has nothing to do with power and influence. He calls us his little children. Like a father who's walking along the road and the little child stumbles and he picks up the child and said, let me hold on to you, little one. A sense of affection because he knows that we feel so weak and so feeble. And finally, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. The unrestrained, unlimited gladness and pleasure of God is not given in things like wealth. In fact, it's easier for a camel, camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said. It's not wealth. Nor is it popularity and fame. Jesus said, blessed are you when men hate you and cast you out and revile you and persecute you. They did it to me too. It's not to do with wealth or popularity. It's not even to do with security. 
because Jesus said, you will be delivered, by the, uh, uh, by, uh, delivered up by your parents and brothers and kinsmen and friends. Some of you will be put to death. You will be hated by all for my sake. So what is this kingdom that he is giving to us? What are we talking about here? Well, let me just tell you some things that are not the heart of the kingdom, but are associated with it. We will inherit the earth in the kingdom. Romans 4 says, and Matthew 5. But that's just a secondary thing, as far as the kingdom is concerned. We will judge angels, says Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But that'll be a secondary thing. We will reign with Jesus Christ and judge nations in the kingdom. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 2. But that's just a secondary thing. We will eat of the tree of life in paradise. However you want to interpret that. It says it in Revelation chapter 2. But that'll just be a secondary thing. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The little children will play over the hole of a snake and put his hand into the viper's den, it says in Isaiah chapter 11. But that'll just be a secondary thing. We will beat our swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither will they learn war anymore, says Micah chapter 4. But that'll just be a secondary thing. Justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, says Amos chapter 5. But that'll just be a secondary thing. Our bodies will be made new and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. Neither will there be crying or guilt or fear anymore, says Revelation chapter 21. But that'll be a secondary thing. That's all. We will sit on the very throne of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, says Revelation chapter 3. But that's just merely a secondary thing about the kingdom. They will all be secondary in the kingdom. They will be there, but that's all secondary. So what is the heart of the kingdom? What is the thing above all other things? In the kingdom, we will forever and ever behold the glory of the king. We shall enjoy that glory with the very pleasure of God himself the scripture says. One of the great frustrations of life is that when we catch a short fleeting glimpse of the glory that is yet to be revealed, the the frustrating thing is that our capacity for understanding that and appreciating it is so limited and we wish we could understand it more. And inwardly we groan at the dichotomy between the revelation of heaven that's given to us in the scriptures, and we're going to be thinking about it on Wednesday in the... um, church night and the response of our hearts. There's a sort of divide. We wish we could grasp it more. Down through history the great longing of all the holiest people that have lived on the face of this earth is not only that they might see the glory of God but that they might savor it and taste it and touch it and know it and long for it more and more with an undiluted joy unmarred by any of the limitations and pressures of this life. And this is exactly what Jesus prayed for. 
John 17, shortly before he died, he prayed and he said this, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. And then these staggering words. I have made known to them and will continue to make known to them uh, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known to them in order that, notice this, in order that the love you have for me may be known by them. So when we're in the kingdom, the very love that the father had for his son and has for his son will be exactly the same as the love he has for you and me and will be shown to us. Imagine that. It's beyond taking in as far as our minds are concerned. Jesus asks the Father that the very love the Father has for the Son may be known by by us. The highest imaginable privilege to know the highest imaginable pleasure. The Father's love poured out on us. We will be filled with all the fullness of God, it says. We will be filled with the beauty of the sun. So infinite, so unending. The focus and delight and joy of the Father through all eternity. Surely that's the river of delights that the psalmist speaks about in Psalm 136, I think it is. When he talks about the river of delights springing up. No wonder it finishes, the Bible finishes with the church saying, come, even so come, Lord Jesus. But I want to say this. This is part of the kingdom and it has to be received by faith. It's a gift and it can be received by faith. Now let's go back a step. We started by talking about worrying. When you think about worrying about this and that and our clothes and what we eat and what we drink and what we're going to do tomorrow and all those things, yes, there's a legitimate concern with those things. But get it in perspective. See it in the light of what is being given to us in the kingdom. And they'll all fall into place. Are you this morning worrying about something? God doesn't chide you for worrying about it. But he says... Get it in perspective. Get the other things sorted out and you'll see that these things will fall into place. Yes, you have to do things about them, but get it into perspective. I'm going to invite you this morning to bow before the Lord Jesus as we pray and close our time together and in so doing, bring your particular concerns to him and see them in the light of what the Father delights to give you in the kingdom. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's with such breathtaking, these are such breathtaking things that we've been talking about. We feel we don't have the words to express them because of their wonder and their greatness. And how wonderful it is that you've delighted to give us the kingdom. Thank you for opening the door in your Son, the Lord Jesus, that we might receive it as a gift. 
But now, Heavenly Father, you know me. You know us. You know the things that are on our mind at this time. And we want to mention them personally in your presence. So before the Lord Jesus, mention those things that are the worries of your heart at this time. And now see what he has given. What one day will be belong to all those who receive it as a free gift. The glory of sharing in all those secondary things and the majesty and greatness of seeing the central thing, seeing the Lord Jesus face to face, enjoying the Father's love through all eternity and see our own problems in the light of that. So, Lord, help us to live our lives with a true perspective we pray. And if you've never received that as a free gift, as far as you're concerned, these are just words. And you've never in faith stretched out your hand to the Father who loves to give. Then why don't you do it now? You say, well, I don't know what to say. Tell him that you want to receive this free gift turning away from yourself, recognizing that Jesus died that you might have it, and receiving the gift of the kingdom, or as it's called elsewhere, the gift of eternal life from his hand. Just tell him. It doesn't matter the words you use. And open your life to him today. Fear not, little flock, for the Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. May we live in the light of it day by day, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing a closing song, which just talks about the excitement and joy of that day. We've sung it a few times recently, we're going to sing it again now, today, and we'll stand to sing. The words will be on the screen. <laughs>